0: Welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Burke, and I do data engineering and machine learning at Databricks. And I'm joined by my wonderful co-host,
1: Ben Wilson. Uh, I read about cool open source packages and
0: figure out how to integrate them at Databricks. Nice. And today we have a guest who is, uh, it's an interesting one. It is my father. His name is Richard (laughs) Burke. Um, He... uh, yeah, how do I even intro? I have so I, just for background, I usually queue up some background of uh who the the guest is and then read that. Um so I'm about to do that, but there's a lot to this man and a lot of interesting discussions that we will be having and have had in the past. Um so yeah. Uh he's a professor at or excuse me, he was a professor of statistics at UCLA and at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, He's a fellow of the American Statistical Association, American Associate for the Advancement of Science, and a bunch of others. He also has a ton of awards, has over 200 papers, 50 books, blah, blah, blah. Um, So, Richard, what are you working on these days? Mostly
2: at this point, two things. Um, Applications of machine learning, usually a version of supervised learning. Um, Sometimes in criminal justice, uh, sometimes in climate applications. And then um, often my applications lead to forecasting problems. Is this person a good individual to give a loan to? Should we admit this person to graduate school? And those are based on future projections about how this individual will perform. So I'm working with some colleagues on extensions of conformal prediction to machine learning applications. And we can talk about that if you want.
0: Yeah, so we've, uh, at least the two of us have talked pretty in depth about these topics, but do you mind sort of setting up the problem of fairness specifically with criminal applications?
2: Sure. Um, as you know, and this goes back at least a decade, maybe more, um, machine learning has gotten a pretty accurate wrap for unfairness. Um, and there's a lot of confusion about what that means and a lot of confusion of where it comes from. Um, in my applications, it comes up particularly in criminal justice where, for instance, if you're trying to predict at sentencing whether an individual is going to reoffend, because the judge needs to make a decision about whether to incarcerate or put on probation, the law in Pennsylvania and elsewhere requires what's called a forecast of future dangerousness. There's even often some language in the legislation that it should be in some sense Mathematical or formal, it just can't be, you know, what the what the judge had for lunch. So um, that necessarily leads to outcomes, which historically, at least, will be different for men and women, for blacks and whites, and for other uh, protected groups. And that, in turn, gets challenged very readily. The classic example—I don't do this—but the classic example everybody talks about is facial recognition. And um, there is, it's true, differences in accuracy based on race. But what all those um, criticisms completely miss is that the baseline is not perfection. The baseline is human beings making the same decisions. So in the case of facial recognition, for example, there's a long research tradition on lineups when someone has been asked to identify an offender. And there are people serving life sentences based on eyewitness testimony. And there's all sorts of evidence now that that eyewitness testimony sucks and that algorithms can do at least as well and probably a lot better. So that's the context in which this comes up. Unfairness means disparities that are inappropriate and that maybe algorithms can do better, but they better behave better with respect to these disparities.
1: I don't think I've ever heard someone summarize applications of machine learning in a hot topic environment as well as you just did with respect to the goal is consistency with a priority behavior, not to change the way people wish things to be different. So it's criminal justice, that's, very, that's a very big hot topic and a lot of people because it's politicized. Some people are like, "No, we need to be more, more strict on sentencing." And other people are like, "No, we need to adopt like a Northern European, you know, <laughs> formulation of, you know, low sentences." The algorithm can't. You, no algorithm you can create in today's technological stack is capable of of inferring what people's emotional bias would be on how they feel about something is the data is what it is and that's what it's trained on. I I do have a question that I think you're one of the very few people that would be able to answer that.
2: Let me just add before we go there. You have hit upon probably the most important error in supervised learning in criminal justice, which is people assume that the reach of the algorithm is the world, the criminal justice system, what cops do. These algorithms typically just inform a decision like sentencing they don't mm-hmm. inform whether the cops are fair or whether the prosecutors are fair or whether there are too many guns in the neighborhood that's a whole other set of very important problems but the algorithm's not responsible and can't make right. that more fair yeah
1: precisely the th- the thing that i'm most curious about and i think you're one of the few people that could answer this uh accurately what if there was a massive paradigm shift in criminal justice prosecution in the united states or let's just say in the state of pennsylvania where whereupon the state legislature and the governor decided we're going to do something different and we're going to have sentences across the board for you know felonies and For misdemeanor charges, we're just not going to put people in prison for that. We're going to create some other system that's probation based across the board. What is the impact from an ML perspective of somebody who builds these models and and trains these algorithms when you have that shift? Let's say it happens July 1st next year. What would your approach be to that algorithm solution that's in production and is being used in courts, where all of a sudden you have this big shift of policy change?
2: Well, the first thing I would do is get a good lawyer because I'm going to be, I'm going to be sued however it comes out. Someone's going to sue me. Um, and then I'd get a publicist because it would be misrepresented in the media for just the reasons that you described. So that's a start. Um, the problem is that the issues that cloud the conclusions about machine learning for incarceration, let's say, and whether that, in fact, reduces future rearrests apply to everything else. We don't know anything more about whether probation works. Uh, we don't know anything more about whether if we have public defenders versus private attorneys protecting people, that's better. So we're in a classic state of ignorance, despite the claims of politicians and computer scientists. So um, that's where you have to start. And what I talk about when I get in these kind of conversations is you want to pick the low hanging fruit. There are some things that we know pretty well. Obvious one, people age out of crime. (laughs) So if you're a bad guy at age 18, you're probably not going to be a bad guy at age 40. And there's 100 years of data on that. And it all goes the same way. It's highly nonlinear, but it's very persuasive. So what does that mean? If you're going to write the laws like you're describing, so as we allow for different prospects for misconduct, be it felony, or misdemeanor, there are certain facts you need to take into account, for example, like age. And that's the sort of things you can build in and probably be right. But if, for example, I build in something like juvenile record, what a kid did before 18, were they arrested? First of all, it's rare hard to get those data. But even if you did, the cognitive scientists step in and say, wait a minute, The kid's brain isn't fully developed yet. Why are you punishing someone holding them responsible for crimes they committed when their brain was only halfway where it should be? There'd also be other claims that, well, that's going to pick on the minority community because those kids get juvenile records earlier. You have to wade through all that stuff. And the answer usually is, we really don't know. So you go for the whole low-hanging fruit. And we can also write algorithms with predictors. With the low-hanging fruit that worked very well, much better than sitting judges do, or probation officers, or parole boards. I don't know if that's fully responsive to your question because it's a really hard one. Uh, but we can, I can sort of respond more if it's not.
1: Uh, I've never heard anybody summarize it better. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you. And that also, from a practitioner standpoint of a developer of algorithms, that. That really makes me think about what I've seen happen in the people that didn't come from the rigor that you came from. Of, like, hey, we have to look at these problems in a very specific way. We have hardware that's very expensive that we're going to be using to train this stuff on. You know, university research over, over the past decades, you were probably working on mainframes, which are not cheap uh, to, to operate, and you better be good before you write code and submit it to them. Nowadays, practitioners can can build a model that goes into production at a company on a $400 laptop you know an xg boost model you don't even have to have any rigor around how you do any of that and it could be making decisions on whether to flag this person's account for fraud and shut them down or you know there's a lot of things that happen in industry right now that are made by people with effectively like a high school level understanding of statistics and they're building a model and the, the thing that i have seen uh, back when i was still in you know working in data science is some people are just like hey more data is better we let's use this you know at first i saw it as let's move away from like the python library of stats models like we we don't want to use that it's too hard it's like no it's no it isn't it, it's it's really good Uh, And they're like, we want to use SK learn. Cool. You want to use supervised learning? That's, that's great. And then that morphed into, I want to use extreme gradient boosting because I can throw tons of data into it. It's fast. Like, sure, I I guess, but what are you throwing in there? Um, What is it going to learn? And then in the last 10 years, people have been saying, well, I'm going to use PyTorch or, or TensorFlow. Deep learning can handle everything and figure it out. It's like, not exactly, and you you keyed in on that when you're talking about thinking through these problems about those correlation effects that are that could potentially be causative or could be causative in a way that is irrelevant to the problem at hand, introducing that data that pattern might be learned by that model, and you didn't intend it to be learned right
2: well, um, I think I've said this two or three times already. you know it's worse um, the problem is you are already several levels beyond much of the state of the art in, let's say, risk assessment and criminal justice. What happens is a bunch of psychologists sit around a table and they say, well, let's take age into account. Let's take prior record into account. Let's take the age at which this person was first arrested. Let's take the recency of the current crime, stuff like that. And they sit down and make a list and they have a checklist and their algorithm is basically you look at the box and check yes or no. You sum all the yeses and get a number. Now, that's an algorithm, and that's the sort of of state-of-the-art in many of the procedures in courts around the country. And, you know, it isn't so bad in terms of accuracy. It's sort of what the humans do, and if that's acceptable, maybe. But that's really state-of-the-art in a sense. The introduction of, well, quick history. That's the way in the United States in criminal justice, risk assessment started in the 1920s. Yeah. And they were these checklists I'm talking about, people sitting around and saying, well, take this into account and that. That in turn led to a little bit of data with cross-tabulations. And then by about 1950, people were using linear regression. And then machine learning enters, you know, 20, 30 years later. But the point is that those earlier methods often are not superseded because people are used to them. So those earlier methods are still common practice. Now you're getting to a, a, a what you describe as a situation of misuse, misunderstanding of what the modern tools can do. And to what you said, and I agree thoroughly, I would add one fact, which is the same incompetence that reflects the use of these technical tools also applies to the subject matter. Mm. Very commonly the people a bunch of psychologists sitting around a table, what do they know? Maybe they know something, maybe they don't. Uh, But with cognitive science, the way it is now, that should be taken into account. And it's not. So my major sort of recommendation is if you're going to build these risk algorithms, insurance, giving loans, admissions to college, criminal justice, you want two kinds of people around the table. You want the technical people who really know, and then you want the subject matter experts. If either of those are missing, you're going to get into deep trouble, 100%. and we're there. And yeah.
1: We're there. <laughs> yeah. I, I couldn't even tell you how many times I've been in those rooms where it's just the technical people trying to figure something out, like just pure, pure data scientist. Air quote on that. Uh, maybe one or two people that have a, a firm grasp on statistics, and nobody in there that understands the business problem that is trying exactly. to be solved you know like yeah we can pull all 17 terabytes of data and make a bunch of charts and run it through a bunch of statistical tests but what could come out of that is something that you know i i've done those exercises with people in in a room everybody sitting around with their computers and just doing sort of a hackathon of like let's see what the data tells us and it's comical sometimes the results that you get it's like well in order to cre- create sales all we need to do you know the thing that is the most important thing is we need more humans on planet earth it's like yeah no kidding Like <laughs> okay that's the greater greatest correlation mm-hmm. or the funny one that i saw one time where somebody was trying to figure out correlating sales of um like the number one driver of Sales of this product line at a company I was working at before uh, was this vendor that was creating like rain gear, like rain jackets, coats, galoshes, stuff. And the thing that came out of this two hour long data analysis was like, hey, it correlates with weather. It's like, no kidding. Like, (laughs) should we start seeding clouds? What's the cost (laughs) of that? You know, but then. On the other side, I've also been the only person in the room with a bunch of SMEs, and they're debating what, what, what to do to solve this one problem. And they want a data scientist to come and automate what they're doing. And you just sit back and listen, and you're like, there are so many assumptions being made about everything here because of tribal knowledge. And nothing's recorded. It's not actually in the data. It's just what people will have like their own pattern recognition that's sitting between their right. ears has developed. And that bias is sometimes it's spot on. It's, it's like the best information you can get to solve that problem. But the, the other 50% of the time that I've found it's so flawed and you get a lot of resistance when going up against that too. But once people, if you can convince somebody and prove to them, like let's try this other thing. And I've I really believe in what you said about that low-hanging fruit, like going after those simple things that can convince people that maybe their processes are wrong or the way they're yeah. they're thinking about how they understand that problem, that's always the most successful because then it opens them up into maybe we should think about changing some other stuff as well.
2: Yeah. Well, that's a good point. And I would just um add to that at least the way I normally proceed, because I work in a lot of settings too, not just criminal justice. I want to keep people in the loop. Let's say I've got a good algorithm. I've done what you and I would agree is a good job. Subject matter information insofar as we have it, reasonable algorithms that run efficiently, all the nice stuff. And then I make another requirement in a sense, which is you have to have humans understand that this is information only. It's not a decision. Right. Don't cede your decision-making power to the algorithm. Take that as input and then make your decision. And the problem is, at least in criminal justice, there's, the decision-makers are so pressured and so under-resourced that there is a d- default. Just do what the algorithm says. And that leads to all kinds of problems. Moreover, a little, little bit of a story. Um, I have an algorithm running in Philadelphia at the Department of Probation and Parole because the level and intensity of supervision depends on whether you're a good guy or a bad guy. And my algorithm can make that distinction really well. And it turns out the good guys are easy to find and you can hardly supervise them at all. You can have them over for dinner. Everything's fine. Um, The problem is that when you get the bad guys, There's very intensive supervision, ankle bracelets, urine tests once a week, and so on. That works and it helps save money and it's more fair. But the problem is that once it works, the information diffuses to the rest of the criminal justice system. So, literally, my algorithm designed for probation and parole was being used by judges at sentencing. That's a different population. Those are folks who have not been incarcerated. Many of them are first-timers. The people who are being supervised are already convicted, usually felons. And so that was a terrible misuse. And it came about because sort of gee whiz, we have this algorithm that works really well. Let's use it everywhere. So again, it's really important to be able to have the individuals who really know the use and limitations at the end of the algorithm deciding how to use it otherwise you know it gets the default sort of operation across many settings where it shouldn't be
1: and is misunderstood do you think that's a human nature thing because i've seen the same thing so many times in my career when building a solution for for a team or a problem and then it gets appropriated by another team for something you're like it wasn't trained on that. Please don't exactly. use it for this. Exactly. Uh, it, it has no concept of what this data is. So it, it, there's, there's so many confounding variables that are not being captured. That would be the causal relationship between this. So when you run it through the, that model, yeah, it's going to give you an answer and it might conform to your bias, but it's, it's not conforming to the actual data. Right. That you want it to, but do you think that that's, it's just part of human nature when presented with a solution or a tool just to use the general term a tool that will greatly reduce the amount of burden that we would have to do for work as a human reduces our mental burden reduces you know the, the amount of time that we have to spend lowers our stress levels is it easier or is it just in our human nature to say, we're going we're gonna to use that and we're not going to have to think about it. But when it goes wrong, we actually feel better because we can blame that inanimate uh, I, object rather yeah. than the human in the loop.
2: I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, I was mentioning the fact that criminal justice officials overworked, underpaid, and they're very happy to push off their desk many of these decisions by using the default of the algorithm. But there's another kind of conceptual problem that I think all of these difficulties are based on. People think that algorithms, I'm going to risk using the term you use are models. When a statistician thinks of models, we say this is the way the world works. The data were generated by nature. And if I get a model that summarizes well what nature works, I understand the mechanisms and can use it for all these other purposes, like forecasting. Algorithms, as you know, don't do that. They're not models in that sense. They're just a recipe like baking a cake. Either you like the taste of the cake or you don't, but there's no right and wrong there, I've always, when I get in this discussion, I say, look, you're baking a cake. You've got a batter. Put the batter in the oven. Once it's in the oven, all kinds of very complicated chemistry follow. Do you understand that? No. You talk to a physicist, do you understand it? No. You talk to a chemist, is it even understood? The answer is no. That's an algorithm. <laughs> this is a black oven rather than a black box. But the but the result is the same that you cannot be convinced that you know something once your algorithm works what you have is a recipe. People think that once the recipe works you have understanding. You don't. And if they have understanding then what you described naturally follows, well, we understand why people don't pay back their loans because our algorithm predicts it. So let's use it when, for example, we use it for business loans, as well as mortgages for homes,
1: which is a mistake. I a number of times in my career, I've sat down to have a similar conversation. And I remember the first time that I did it, the, the sort of brutal honesty with, a business executive who was like, "Hey, you, Mr. Data Scientist, you you created this project. We're about to, you know, start using it, and it's going to go into production." Uh, and I remember the guy just looked at me, and said, "How confident are you that this is going to work?" I was like, "What do you want? A percentage of confidence?" <laughs> um, I'm like, "I can do holdout validation, and I've been doing that. You know, I've been doing a shadow deployment of this for a month." Waiting to collect data to see what it would do, and then having the subject matter experts see and tell me, does this is this good or is this terrible? And I was like, they all said it's good, but and he's like, no, no, no. How does it? Do you do you understand how it works and know like how good it's going to do? I was like, no, I have no idea how it works. He's like, you built it, like yeah, you asked because he got involved in the project he's like you Uh he's like you told me to use tensorflow like i showed you eight different options one was a a statistical algorithm that is basically a manual decision tree effectively that we wrote that i could understand what what's going on there um because it's just a rules-based engine but once you move away from that and we did you know a linear model which I can't really understand with that many like arguments in it. You know, yeah. we have 400 variables in this, this <laughs> equation. Like I have no idea how that works. Yeah. Like, mathematically, I know, but what the interactions are, no idea. I can give you pretty charts though. Uh, but then when, once you move on to, you know, latest and greatest and more technologically sophisticated algorithm generators, we start talking about model weights of a, a deep learning network. It's like, no idea. Yeah. Right.
2: Well, um I I'm in a situation that's a little different in the sense that I'm working with people more on a long-term basis. Maybe that was also the case with you. And I spend a lot of time educating them on just the points that you made. And um, you need sort of metaphors. I, I talk about the fact, just as you just did, here are the steps that I've gone through to address the credibility of my results. And I, it turns out if I do certain things, I can put a probability on a statement that if I say this is going to happen with 95% confidence, confident the coverage is 95%. <laughs> and that, But look, imagine you bought a car and you got a warranty with that car for a certain grade of gasoline, and you put in oil in the gas tank. Your warranty is voided, right? And the car won't run that's the kind of mistake we want to avoid um, and if you can come up with metaphors which they're more familiar with I'm giving you a warranty if you violate the warranty or if you go outside of what the warranty covers it's on you that sort of helps but it takes time and patience and if you're just you know stepping into the conference room for an hour it's really difficult
1: it's sometimes, I learned the hard way how challenging that is placing controls on something on, on a machine learning algorithm, yeah. whereupon you actually prevent improper usage of, uh-huh. like beforehand. Uh-huh. Yeah. I thought that was a good idea. I was like, oh, yeah, I don't want somebody misusing this. So I'm going to put acceptable data input ranges on what well, like, comes in. And it, in theory, it it kind of, made a lot of sense sure the way that i found those ranges though is using fundamentals of statistical process control i was like hey i'm going to plot this out and find out where my my confidence intervals are on a on a temporal scale yeah and then i'm going to go two sigma out from that and if i'm in excess of two sigma i'm going to issue a warning if i'm out if i'm in excess of three sigma i'm just not going to allow the data to be processed and that went into production. It ran for about six weeks before all, like it was just an exception generating factory because the fundamental nature of the data actually shifted because of something that happened that I wasn't capturing within the, the data model. Uh, there was like a new business unit or something opened and our sales went up a ton, which then caused this massive shift in, in like 10 of the properties or the parameters yeah. coming in so scrambling to fix that and i was like yeah. maybe i should do auto statistical process control based on a window and then you know 6000 lines of python script later i was <laughs> like this is kind of complicated i don't know if i want to do this anymore
2: yeah i mean that's a, it's very important that when you describe the warranty mm-hmm. that you're providing with your product you raise the point that this has been trained on this historical data and here are the sort of things Looking forward, it could happen, which would make the new data not like this anymore. Basically, you're arguing in these algorithms, history has to repeat itself. And if it doesn't, you're at risk. And then you can usually, as you just described, put in some diagnostics, which help convey that history is changing. Um, And then if you're really (laughs) going to intrude, you have an off switch. If history intrudes this much, bingo, your algorithm disappears. Um, That works if you can get your client to buy it. And I I don't know. I don't work with
0: business as much. Right. So question on that. um, We've been talking a lot about ensuring that algorithms are successfully utilized in a proper manner. And I was wondering that if you had throughout your career had slowly learned this, or knew this from the beginning? Was there sort of a project that was an inflection point for you that made you realize that this is actually super important? You're not just building models, but you're educating.
2: Um, as a statistician, that comes with the territory. I um, mean, the very one of the first things you learn in statistics is the power of random sampling to a particular population, and if that's not the population to which you're inferring, you're out of luck. So it was kind of fundamental in the education. And then if you talk about randomized experiments, for example, as another application of statistical principles, one of the ongoing problems today, which you learn, I learned about in my first stat class, was if you do a, an experiment, let's say, on a vaccine for a particular population, let's say, of people who volunteered for the study, you may not be able to say anything about the more general population of folks who didn't volunteer for the study. That's stat one. So it carried over very naturally. And it's something I always have to talk about with people I, I collaborate with.
0: Nice. And you've done a bunch of different projects ranging from like tuna fishing to criminal justice, etc. Um, can you give some examples of your prior projects where you had to educate in this way? Sure.
2: Um, one of my favorites you alluded to, uh, there's a large fishery off the coast of Chile. In which it's international fishery, these enormous fishing factories really is what they are. Go out and catch tuna. And there's certain ways they do that, um, basically with nets. They're called each time you throw out a net, it's called a set. And the international treaty required that there be no bycatch. Bycatch is killing of sea creatures, marine creatures that are not part of the catch that you're gonna have humans consume. And you're not allowed to do that, you can't kill sharks can't kill sea turtles, and whatever you do, don't kill dolphins, because they have a lot of popular support. So these fishing boats go out, and who's to know what they, what they kill? So they put observers on the boats who record each time there's a set what marine life is captured, because if it's captured, it's pretty much dead. There are ways of bringing in the nets, which allow, for example, dolphins to escape, but it's still very risky. So everybody thought that was great until they realized that when a boat comes in after, a, let's say, a month at sea, they may have a hundred thousand dollars worth of fish. It's very easy for the captain to give the observer five thousand bucks to fudge the records. Who would know? And um, if it turns out the penalty for catching, let's say, killing dolphins is that the whole catch is no longer fit for sale. I mean, it, it, you could eat it, but that's the rule. So there was enormous incentives to bribe observers. So the question was, how do you find out which, which uh, captains are cheating? Well, it turns out that we know a lot about when a net is pulled in, what it is that kills dolphins. For example, if they get tangled in the net, they breathe like you and I do, they suffocate. And there's other things you can tell as well. if the net comes in too fast, they again get caught and so forth. So you can build an algorithm which says, under what conditions do you expect there to be dead dolphin? And once you have that algorithm, the boat comes in, you have lots of information that's recorded about each set. I mean the the observers aren't clever enough to fudge everything. They just fudge that there were no dolphin. And if you have sets which your algorithm says, Dolphins should have died, and if over a period of a couple months, an observer claims, nope, we didn't kill any dolphin, you then hold a hearing, which is basically a legal proceeding uh, against the captain and the observer. So we built that algorithm. We tested it by backcasting individuals who they caught by other means for cheating, and it worked great. And that algorithm then became part of the standard practice for finding cheaters in this fishery. And no doubt we saved the life of thousands of dolphins in the process. So that's an example of an algorithm. It was, by the way, random forest. Um, and that was a decade ago. And it worked really well under these circumstances. So that's one application that isn't um, maybe unusual. Um one I'm working on right now, and maybe I'll just sort of jump 30 years ahead. Um, in climate science, Um, The simulations, the global circulation models that they use work pretty well, but they are basically making forecasts about what's going to happen on the average. And there's lots of disagreement about that. Those models are imperfect. They don't handle clouds very well, but they make these forecasts and there's disagreement. Everybody agrees it's going to be bad, but how bad is a, a problem? Moreover, it doesn't do local predictions very well. I can't tell you in Philadelphia what's going to happen with climate change 20 years from now. I can tell you on the average for, let's say, the middle of the United States, that doesn't help a policymaker trying to worry about, let's say, plastic recycling in Philly. Anyway, um, they do a pretty good job. But what they miss is extreme rare events. So the extreme hot waves in Seattle sometime back and in Europe, they miss the increase of stronger hurricanes one that just came in off maybe a month ago into uh, into the uh, Baja of Mexico. Um, they miss all that, those extreme events. And the reason they miss it is there's no data. By definition, extreme rare events are rare. So what are you going to train on? Um, and there have been lots of clever ideas. That's a whole other story that physicists have built into this, um, their models to try to get at this. Well, um, what I have suggested we're going to start working on is if you can just get me large data sets from the simulations that have a few of these terrible rare events, I can use a genetic algorithm to construct a population of rare events, which brings along the, all their predictors. And I can study that. Now it's a simulation of a simulation to be sure, but as a start, I can study all that. And see if that helps me understand. This is now explanation, if I can build models based on that, thanks to my genetic algorithm. I've used genetic algorithms to study rare events in criminal justice, and they work great. We, for example, some years ago were studying, trying to forecast mass shootings in schools. Thankfully, those are very rare. Even now, they're very rare. The probability that any school would have a mass shooting is like one in a million any given year. So if you get a data set. With 100,000 schools, that maybe you got 10 of these mass shootings. You can build an algorithm, let's say, boosting, gradient boosting. You build an algorithm by weighting the data so these rare events are as if they were more common. But that doesn't work great. It's a good first step. But now you can use that that algorithm as what's called a survival function, a genetic algorithm. Run it until you get a population of all of shootings and the predictors that come along with it and you're good to go now we don't know if that's going to work for rare events and climate but it's to my knowledge it's never been tried
1: definitely worth a shot that's fascinating (laughs) like we had an algorithm that we worked on uh about four years ago that was applying that like a similar principle of that to try to short circuit hyperparameter optimization in time series models, um, and me, me, and like three other people worked on it. It was fascinating. Like, just I had no idea how genetic algorithms work. Like, how do you take you know a really good parent, a bunch of other potential parents to to merge with that and do basically gene selection on exactly parameter search space and doing it over like non-standard linear distributions where you're like, okay, this, this is this parametric distribution that I have on a priority data. Where should I, what is my highest probability of, of success of selecting a potential mate of a selection range in order to... And after building it, we're like, hang on, this is actually not just fast, but it is shockingly accurate. We we tried it against a whole bunch of other optimization techniques for finding good hyperparameters. Yeah, And we were reducing the time to optimization by about 40%. But then the final found accuracy was better than those other means almost every single time. We're like, this is great. Unfortunately, we wrote it in a language for a platform that not a lot of people use. So we're just like, If we're going to port this over to something that's popular, that's another year of work. So let's not do that. But we were doing something very similar, where we're like we're looking for those isolated cases where we get an outlier, but sort of like a good outlier, because in most, particularly in brute force hyperparameter optimization, you just have a bunch of junk that gets thrown out there, even for the Bayesian methodology. And it's like, how do I find that, that true rare event and then replicate that, basically have a bunch of synthetic children and then simulate what those combinations would be and then just run those, the ones that with the highest probability of success.
2: And over and over. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's a great story. Um, you're, you're saying it worked really well. Have you taken those principles and used them elsewhere? So I'm a great fan of those, of those genetic algorithms. I think they're terrific.
1: Personally, no. Uh, I moved into a completely different role, um, just pure software engineer, but um, it's thinking through problems like that. I think once you go through the process of that's true, sort of out of the box thinking like, hey, there's this accepted way of doing something. Let's try something else with the principles of things that other people have taught me and things that I've thought through and papers that I've read. Uh, I learned all of those techniques actually, by working with a couple of statisticians uh-huh. and which that carries over to a question I have for you that I asked those you know professional statisticians as well back in like almost two decades ago. Um, what are your thoughts on the fact that modern society is making decisions based on populations where we're not equipped as a species to make decisions on. So I think evolutionarily, we as a species are tribal. We're capable of understanding the concepts of things that affect 200 people, things we can see, we can observe, we can draw inference from with, with our eyes and our ears and our immediate you know, environment. And the principles of statistics allow us to Infer how behavior would change over a much larger data set, effectively, or much bigger complex problem space. And what are your thoughts on the fact that the people who make decisions for extreme large populations, you know, in a country or state or the planet Earth or our species as a whole, have uh, the fact that statistics and understanding the principles of how to effectively make decisions based on data or information doesn't seem to be an important part of their educational upbringing or their understanding mm-hmm. of how the world works that's how we process information about events and i just wanted to hear from an educator's perspective like, what your thoughts are on that
2: well i mean that comes up i'm drawing my own experience that comes up in my work. Um, uh, at any given time in Philadelphia, for instance, there may be 50,000 people under supervision, probation and parole. And without worrying about algorithms for a moment, there's lots of background information. You have administrative data, you know, their age, gender, you know, uh, something if you wish about their race and so on. Um, and then you get averages. Um, and The information that you can convey is if you can figure out what the subsets are Mm -hmm. and what fraction of the population they are and how they would respond differently, let's say, of young people versus old people under probation or whatever, you can convey that to decision makers. But you got to do the hard work of getting subject matter experts to tell you what are the important clusters. you got to find those clusters. That's statistical do separate analysis within each and then provide decision makers that information. But you're right. I mean, the old joke, you know, about um, if you take a, if you believe in averages, um, Michael's going to have 2.3 children. Well, that third, that one third of a child doesn't have a good life expectancy. So what is the average telling you? And so people then worry about subsets and better ways of handling what's going on. It's a tough problem because it's hard work.
0: Yeah, it, it draws to the prior conversation that we were having about when is an algorithm better or good enough? It Often people want it to be perfect, but the baseline is the existing solution. So often humans making decisions. This is a classic example with self-driving cars. Is it better than the average human? Well, there's a lot of drunk drivers, um, but if you just count the number of crashes, I think self-driving cars is now better than humans. I could be wrong. Um, But you need to look at the full distribution. Like, are the self-driving car accidents at the right tail or the left tail, whichever you're looking at, are they really, really bad? Are they completely uniform? Um, Are they more expensive? So again, looking at the whole distribution is super, super important for making decisions between algorithms and humans.
2: Well, that's right, because as a matter of sort of publicity, you know, a self-driving car drives down a woman in a pushing a baby carriage. That's going to be very different than, let's say, Michael, after a, a drunken Friday night, gets hit by a car. I mean, it's no contest. So um you're absolutely right. I don't know if either of you know, but in Philadelphia, three or four days ago, one of the starters on the Philadelphia 76ers basketball team was apparently a victim of a hit-and-run accident. And that's gotten... Enormous publicity. As you can imagine, all kinds of calls for regulating traffic better, giving uh, drunk drivers a rougher time, and so on. They haven't caught the hit and run guy yet. I'm assuming it's a guy. Um, but that would be very different than lots of other individuals who are routinely hit and crossing the street here in Philadelphia, and nobody really cares except their immediate family. So you're right, you want to break that down. Don't hit a professional baseball player. Player, professional basketball player, or worse, professional football player in Philadelphia.
0: Right. Who? Wait, who was it out of curiosity? Uh, Obrey. Oh,
2: damn. Yeah, he's out for probably three or four weeks. Jeez. Broke yeah, a rib. I, and...
0: I hope that guy is not found for his sake. <laughs> yeah. Poor girl. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's absolutely right. Yeah. But someone's got to do the work.
2: And that's another place, incidentally, where subject matter experts are essential because they can tell you what clusters are of uh, policy interest. By the way, I'm with you on on things like uh, cars. I think eventually the data will show that they're much safer than human drivers. Right. Yeah. But let let me pose to you a question that that raises in criminal justice, because I see it all the time. And it's also an issue for algorithms process matters going back to the Magna Carta we've been promised that we will be tried by a jury of our peers is an algorithm a jury of your peers there's all kinds of processional requirements have nothing to do necessarily with the actual outcome but people who when they go to trial want to have quote their day in court Well is an algorithm a day in court and so a lot of what I run into, in my work when I do applied problems is people say, but you're depriving me of due process. And I don't have an answer for that because the fact of the matter is if you use the Magna Carta or whatever current statutes are in place, you are depriving them of due
1: process. Do we care? That's a fascinating question. When you talk about the true nature of justice and about the pursuit of truth, when you're talking about you know criminal case or civil or anything, the system itself is flawed because we're completely unable and it's an impossible solution to solve of saying, how do I collect all of the information about this event that happened or that somebody is accused of being a part of? Do we have video footage of everything that this person did at every single millisecond for six months leading up to this event? No. Yeah. Do we know everybody that they came in contact with and every interaction that they had with everything? Do we know what it was like or what the, the exact situation was? You know, you never know all of the information on that. Or what the motivations are. What are the psychological motivations of the person that might have been accused of doing this? Or the person who may have, they might be innocent than the, the person who actually did it, find out 15 years ago, well, 15 years later that they actually did it. You know, particularly with stuff like murder trials, it always fascinates me with thinking about that process of the criminal justice system of like, how can, how could you be? so sure that you're right and you think about prosecution and defense you know they might have a, an assumption of what they like whether they think a, a person actually did it or not the police have assumptions the judge is going to have to you know have assumptions on things the jury's definitely going to be biased on whatever said in that courtroom it in a world where that entire process is flawed and you can never really know unless somebody confesses you know
2: Ah, I will, yeah, And that's a, that's a big one right there. Um, we have all the time uh, claims of false confessions because <laughs> they were questions under duress. Yeah, but let, let me ask the two of you. I mean, I know this is supposed to be me answering questions. But you guys are smart and you're knowledgeable. Let me ask you. Okay, um, telemedicine. I give you two scenarios. You have a human doctor diagnose you, let's say accurately using the same information that an algorithm is using to diagnose you accurately. So you can get a chat GPT or whatever the chatbot is to give you a diagnosis, which is as accurate as you would get from a human physician.
0: Which would you prefer? Do you care? I'll jump in. I'm a big proponent of the ends justify the means. So if a chatbot is faster, then I would always go with the chatbot but the reason why people like do process so much is it has all these checks and balances that theoretically will be more robust and more fair like the process isn't just for fun like we're not swinging a dead cat around it's 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 to actually make a more systematic and fair outcome and so with that said i am 100% results oriented but to get to good results you typically need a strong process so with telemedicine versus GPT, you're, you set it up as GPT will have the exact same accuracy. I will use GPT. But there are probably cases where GPT won't. And I would like to have a human who's well-trained to maybe review. Or the inverse, have a human decide and then have GPT review. So mixture of experts with humans and models is my holy grail. But what do you think, Ben?
2: Ben, what's your take?
1: <laughs> um... So you get a very interesting response from the latest training run of GPT-4. Uh, as an exercise, everybody that has an account, go ahead and ask it what its own opinion is of its capac- capacity to solve a particular nuance problem and, and specifically ask it if it can outperform a fine-tuned transformers model on a language task. Say so like, hey, I want to detect spam and I'm going to give you these 10 emails, tell me which one is spam. If you don't preface it with any sort of lead-in of saying, I need you to be super accurate on this, and are you the best at this? If you don't say anything like that and just give it the instruction to tell me which one of these is spam, it'll generate an answer for you. It's pretty good at doing that, unless it's very nuanced, like some sort of new scam tactic. Uh, for phishing or something that nobody's really seen a lot of before. However, if you preface the prompt with telling it, I need you to tell me if you're the best at doing this. And if you're not, what should I use? And it will give you a couple of pages of very finely curated text that I believe somebody at OpenAI actually wrote um, (laughs) (coughs) that says like, hey, I'm I'm an advanced language model trained by OpenAI on this sort of data. I am not an expert in this. In fact, if you were to use a fine-tuned model that has been trained on this exact use case that has been curated by human experts, then you should use that if you have that available to you. I am a general language model for, of generative yeah. lang- you know, AI. So there's a lot of layers to peel back on that onion for me. I'm like, that's really clever that they they knew people would ask something like this or prompt in this way. You know, kudos to the open AI engineers uh, that did that. But there's also that whole aspect of, you know, professional ML people, statisticians, data scientists, mathematicians. We all know that you're going to get a better result with better data in whatever algorithm you're generating. If it's, if it's you know, something that is a highly accurate data set regardless of the methodology that you're using, the output is going to be better than if it's just sort of junk data or generalist data. So I probably wouldn't want to interface with GPT-4 because it it, it knows better. Well, it doesn't know, but you know the algorithm can be prompted to make itself aware that it's not the best at that task because that's not what it was designed to do. But that isn't to say that somebody's not going to go out there and take that mixture of experts model and make one that is specifically tasked for medical diagnosis. I'm sure, it, it's already being worked on right now. Um, and that's that's a business, part of OpenAI's business that they're looking to get into, I think, is you know domain-specific training. If something like that was available, I don't think it would be a risk to... Doctors in general, like medical doctors, what it would be a, a disruptor for is physicians' assistants, uh, people oh. that work at minute clinics and you know those walk-in, not the walk-in ERs, but like the hey, you don't need an appointment, ten-minute wait, just come in and yeah. you have a cold, we'll we'll give you a prescription for something. I think stuff like that is going to get replaced. Um, do you think, do you think, let's,
2: we can use this, can do this example. One of the things you get in a doctor's visit is human connection. So mm-hmm. they'll ask you how your kids are and so forth and how you're feeling and did you get your workouts in, whatever it is. And you walk out of that uh, interaction saying, how was a fun? I feel good. I feel that this person, I connected with this person. Supposing I designed my chatbot. So they'd ask you, how are your kids? Um, how did you get your workouts in? Are you eating well? And so forth. Just what the doctor would say. But it's coming, you know, from a chatbot versus from Ben, who's a physician you've known for 20 years. And they're equally accurate. Would you care?
1: What a great question and a great setup. Um, nuanced answer for me. Uh, I think. For my yearly checkup, I'll go with a human. For if I'm sick and I'm not getting better in 48 hours, I'll go with the bot. And the, the reason for that is yeah. when I'm, I'm looking for strategic care and the long-term vision of a family doctor at a yearly checkup, who's, I have a relationship built with them, and human connection is very important. But when I'm sick, that's tactical to me. And I actually, I don't want to waste my, my doctor's time with that. I'm just like, hey, probably have some like bacterial infection because something's going around. Everybody else is super sick. Statistics tell me that I probably picked this thing up. I just need a prescription for antibiotics. Do I want to waste my doctor's time with this? No. So if I could go to a, a service that is like, hey, use use the kit that exists in your home that's connected to the internet and, mm-hmm. and encoded to your you know you have your personal access token for this stuff so we can transmit it you know through the internet take your blood pressure your temperature you know all these diagnostics from these tools and we'll tell you you know where to go pick up your prescription I would definitely use that for for illness stuff
2: oh, okay so you, you both well you've enunciated Michael has too a couple of principles to decide when an algorithm is preferred to a human. Um, To take your example, are there certain applications of algorithms where the human connection which is missing is important enough to not use the algorithm or not? Can you partition algorithms into those where process is really important because you get rewards in the interaction and the smiles and the eye contact and all that Whereas other kinds of algorithms, you don't care because you've just given an example in medical practice. But can that be generalized to different kinds of algorithms? Some are more processual rewarding. For example, when I get error messages back when I write crappy code, I don't want to be insulted. I want something which, yeah, good try. You're you're a smart guy, but you misplaced a comma. I know you can do it better. Or do you want, you jerk. I, yeah, I get the you jerk usually. You jerk. <laughs> Does stuff like that really matter? You'd think so, but it doesn't make it any more or less accurate.
1: Interesting. I was thinking when you started this question, I was thinking the exact same thing about like my my immediate work, like what I do day in and day out now. And I was thinking about what the performances of these advanced language models are on two different tasks that I work on. So I'm a back-end engineer where just doing api design and building and fixing bugs and you know working on that that level stuff but recently I've been having to do documentation work cuz our docs are not that good uh, for mlflow and so we're taking it on as this big initiative to make them really good which requires doing a lot of front end work i'm not a front end guy uh, at all so i've been watching tutorials and you know testing out code and learning JavaScript. And GPT four has been a a really good friend of mine in learning this. Uh ask a question like, can you give me an example of doing this sort of thing? And it generates some code. You know, it's it works 70% of the time for front end stuff. It's not really designed for that. Um I think Python is it's more like 90% accurate. But it's interesting how if I ask it questions about um, like a backend implementation, okay, I'm doing this algorithm or I'm, I'm creating this API or this interface. I don't care if it was as, as formal and cold as possible because that world is binary. It's, well, it's not binary, but I mean, it's, it's either correct and it works or it's correct. It works. It needs a bit of work. It's not the most optimal (laughs) way of doing it or it just doesn't work. And it sucks. I would not be offended. In fact, I'd probably smile if GPT four was like, Ben, that sucks. Like here's a better way to do it. I'd probably just laugh. I'd be like, Yeah. yeah, you're right. But on the front end side, I, there's no way for me to, Give JavaScript and CSS instructions to GPT4 and say, is this design good? Does this do you think that this would look good to a person? Now, talking to seven different experts who are all UX designers or like graphic designers, maybe two of them will agree at the same time. <laughs> the other five will be like, I hate this or I love this. There's so much just personal bias in stuff like that. I don't think that's a solvable thing with any of the existing technology. Um, and I would actually be, I think it would be a little bit dangerous if I was using that and it was giving me these sort of positive feedback. It's like, yeah, I tested your code. It works. And then you go and, you know, render it and you just get up, completely obliterated by all the ux people <laughs> like who designed this piece of junk it's like uh sorry
0: yeah my two cents on this is um when i'm using gpt for knowledge transfer i don't care about any fluff any motivation or anything like that and that's primarily what i use it for as soon as it starts doing services like being a doctor Maybe being a personal trainer, doing things that are like related to motivation or emotions, that's where it needs a lot more sensitivity. But I don't know that it couldn't be built into the model relatively easily. Like, if you, I'm not quite sure how, if I'm being honest, but there, I don't think that that's too difficult. The thing that is not going to happen in the next million years is face to face interaction where you get the same feeling of facial expressions. Um, In terms of a physical sense, maybe on a screen, we'll have that in like 20 years or something. But I think the physical like robotic system, that is something that is just hard to hard to replicate. And um, so that I think is the cutoff for me. I'm always a big proponent of just straight knowledge transfer because I'm motivated enough and I I don't usually need a pat on the back. Um, But there are definitely scenarios where some emotional intelligence and EQ is relevant.
2: What about humor?
0: I don't care. I mean, be
2: smartest, nice. ass comments. You know uh, that could be programmed. So you say, well, here's the error you made in your code. It's just like um, riding a donkey or something at, a, at a, uh, as a instead of a thoroughbred horse. That's not very funny, but you could imagine writing in stuff which had a little levity. Um,
1: I don't know. Uh, you wouldn't care. You can when prompt I, GPT-4 yeah, to exactly. do that. It will do it. I've shown it some examples of funny stuff that I got They're it to pretty do. Good, yeah. um, you have to provide quite a bit of prompting to instruct it. Like, yeah. I want you to act like this person in everything that I ask you for this session. And it'll do it. It's pretty pretty clever. But my question to you, Michael, on your your statement about not in a million years. Do you think we're that far off from, you know, Westworld-style androids as a technology? <laughs> like, do you think, I mean, I think something like that is possible technologically within the next four or five decades. Like, somebody's going to solve that, where it's like, the only way you're going to really know whether this robot that you see sitting across a, a room from you as a human or, or as a synthetic being is if you take a knife to it, you know, and start cutting it up. Um, I think that there's no way in the foreseeable future that, that any sort of algorithm or suite of algorithms or it would have to probably be thousands of them would be installable in something like that that would make, they would fake you out as being like, I don't know if the, the Turing test, I, I, I can't <laughs> tell. I think that's way off, like way, way off. But from an interaction perspective, would the complexity of a doctor's visit, do you think that that wouldn't be able to be automated? So if you think about even a yearly checkup, you're in there for 20 minutes with a doctor. They might ask you 50 questions. A lot of times they just nod in response or write something down or they prompt based on what you say, they prompt like ser- like a set series of, of questions that they would ask that are leading questions from what you said to get more health information from you. I think that's different than if you were to, to sit down for a beer with that doctor after, after hours, be like, Hey, let's go have dinner. That would be impossible to do because now you're talking to, you know, an actual human being that is not, effectively programmed in their profession about what they need to get done.
0: Yeah, that- All right, heard. Um, so yeah, doctors can be awkward and a lot of people can be <laughs> awkward. So again, we're trying to beat the existing bar and not meet the holy grail of a best friend. So can it be like an interaction while I'm ordering coffee? hundred percent. Um, in terms of physical systems, I have absolutely no idea. So I'm not going to guess. But in terms of like a, an interaction style and with basic body language, I'm sure that's pretty easy to build. It's just, um, I don't know, we got to make skin, we got to make eyes, we got to make he- like teeth and things. Um, and you're, you're making a face like it's it's already there or making a face like it's hard.
1: Check out some of the, the cutting-edge robotics stuff that people have been doing for mm. Androids. It's it's scary. It's, no, it's okay. no longer in the uncanny valley. It's more like, okay, that actually looks like a person. It, it's scary. Mm, Boston okay. Dynamics, their work on robotics yeah. is, is pretty advanced. And yeah, there's companies in Japan and in China that are just going nuts with that stuff.
2: I was going to say, I mean, a lot of it, we talk about the baseline people who need the human companionship will lower their baseline and accept an imperfect robot. So there's Japan, Japan is an example. There are robots that are used in hospitals to talk to patients and it makes they claim it makes them feel better. Like, like a dog, a mm-hmm. um, dog, you can't interact <laughs> with a dog. Like you do your pediatrician, but um, you get a lot of, of the same kind of, um, interactive uh, satisfaction if you lower your, your threshold.
0: Well, even down to like a plant, people feel better about having plants and taking something that's uh, living and having it depend on them. So I'm sure you could build independence where you need to push a robot's button every 10 hours or else it dies or something. Yeah, um, yeah. I- interesting, interesting stuff. Um, so we're coming up on time. Uh, any other thoughts? before I close?
2: Yeah, one, I'm going to get up on my soapbox for about 10 seconds. Um, there's a lot of talk in AI about the existential threat of you know our, our new uh, computer overlords, a master race of machines. And that's, I think, um, enormously premature. But there is an existential threat for AI autonomous weapons used in war. Um, and if you want to get a sense, um, go back and listen or watch the movie Dr. Strangelove. Um, and you'll see in an earlier time, the computer takes over and we're it's the end of the world as we exchange nuclear weapons. Um, and um, as the old joke goes, chicken little only has to be right once. Um, so I'm very worried about that. I'm not an insider. I don't know about what's going on, but I can infer from people who are insiders and what they say and kind of smirk that these autonomous kill weapons exist and may have already been deployed in some circumstances. And we have no idea how to regulate them. And in fact, because of international competition, we're not going to be motivated to regulate them because Russia won't or China won't or an in insurgent group won't. And that is, I think, an existential threat to us all.
1: Yeah, I, I actually, so well. I do not think we're that far off with the technological achievements and it wasn't quite so prevalent when I was in the Navy, but uh, people that I've, that I've known that have actually ended up retiring from, uh, from service. Um, yeah, they have told me like, yeah, it's crazy on the ship. Now you have like drones taken off. I'm like, yeah, but you know, those are controlled by. By a pilot you know in yeah. nevada they're like yeah but i don't know I, I think that they're working on something that we don't need like a pilot i was like that that'll be crazy i mean when you start talking about all right it's algorithmically programmed to go to a gps coordinate that you program into it and say loiter here until you detect this thing then launch your ordinance i do not think that that's more than 20 years off and what well, i think
2: that's when- here i think that's here.
1: Yeah, the technology to do it, certainly. But what happens when somebody makes a mistake in the training data? And, you know, it's not like it's going to fly back to the White House in Washington, D.C. and (laughs) drop missiles on it. Uh, But it's more like, what happens when it starts targeting, you know, a little girl in the street who's holding a balloon because the image recognition algorithm that was in there (laughs) thought that that was a shoulder-launched RPG? You know, that's what I'm terrified of, of, you know, humans make mistakes like that. They're held accountable and there are guards and controls over people making egregious mistakes like that, at least in the United States military there is. Uh, And there's the possibility of prosecuting for war crimes when you make egregious errors like that. What do we do with an algorithm developer who created something that's fundamentally flawed and killed 400 people? in the course of a two-week period in a, in a war zone. And what are the implications of that? Do we shut down all those programs? Yeah. Probably not. As you mentioned, that arms race is, is an actual arms race, and it has been for millennia yeah. now. So who knows?
2: Two examples at the extremes. Currently, mm-hmm. landmines are autonomous weapons. Once mm-hmm. they're there in the ground, we don't know who they're going to kill. And there's been... Uh, decades of efforts in Geneva and elsewhere to regulate them. And it's gotten nowhere. That's a scary example. Uh, I have a friend who um, through a couple of connections knows a bit more about this stuff than I do in practice. And he was telling me that the military, the army in particular is working with swarms of drones Mm -hmm. and they just take off. And what they let them do is develop their own strategies and they do. And the strategies that they develop beat human pilots, not just because they're quicker, but they're better strategies. And our experts in military strategy didn't think of it. Well, if you have a a swarm of drones able to beat a swarm of humans with strategies they'd never thought of, the mistake that you talk about isn't just one girl with a balloon. Lord knows, because you don't know what strategy the drones are going to come up with. Um because we, we don't know
0: the method, we
1: don't understand the black box. Wait, it's, it's completely yeah. under like something beyond our understanding. If you look yeah. at any of the stuff that's involved in reinforcement learning these days, yes. You put that on on like a ray cluster and you say, Hey, RL init, I want to just train this this system. Uh I work with Databricks customers that are doing this type of stuff now. They're not building kill drones, <laughs> but the stuff that they're able to do with these systems where it's it's training this agent that is interfacing with 10,000 running versions of a video game. And this is not, hey, it's trying to learn Pac-Man to beat the world record. Mm-hmm. That was done decades ago. It's yeah. more like this is playing against human players and against other expert AIs that it's developing its own tactics so fast yes. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of actions per second. It's on a completely different scale than, than any human would ever be able to compete with. But in in just a few hundred epochs, it's able to learn these very complex advanced games that humans struggle to to become experts at. It takes you five years of playing this type of game to become proficient at a competitive level this thing takes five hours to start taking on experts. It takes five days to be able to, to basically beat the world champions. And th- these are complex video games. It's like Defense of the age amazing Dota. Yeah. And they're starting to pass these against video game systems and interfaces with these 3D worlds that mimic our own. And the mm-hmm. agency... It, Available to the actual player and what it can do and what strategies it can it can discover, it's amazing what it comes up with. It blows me away. It's like wow, and that they just maintain this log of interesting things that this system learned that we never thought of, and how it can basically it it, it finds exploits in games. Like hey, if I do this thing, because it just brute force tried it a bunch of times and under and like figured out the mechanics of it it can beat the game in, in 20 minutes and it's supposed to be a 40 hour long game. So it's finding all of these holes in human wow. error, but it can run hundreds of these agents all at the same time. You just scale it out horizontally. You want to start. <laughs> so it can solve problems that
2: do the agents interact. N-
1: not with the systems that, that our customers are doing. Oh, it's not, that's far okay. more advanced. Yeah. Uh, what they're doing is like a single agent that's just trying to become an expert. And then once it's an expert, it's playing, it's interfacing with several hundred computers, like several hundred yeah. CPUs that are talking to a, a mainframe. And that mainframe is running like the video games itself, uh, at, you know, hundred thousand X speed of what it would be if you try to turn it on in a computer. There's no graphics being rendered, yeah. but yeah, it's just fascinating stuff. Uh, and we, my big existential question is what happens when we take that tech and start putting it into a robot? It's like, hey, you you have the power supply and the compute power and everything that you can evaluate your own environment and just learn on your own without, you know, you have to put restrictions on there and a human has to do that. And if we're using these bots to find out how humans are flawed in making something a video game that there's a lot of money on the line for these games. We're talking billions of dollars, yeah. and they're still making mistakes in those. What does that say about our capacity of creating safeguards for a system like that that's actually exposed to the real world?
2: Wow! I, I just I, I, the one thing you've said that gives me a little hope is that that's some distance off. Um, I think these these current weapons are within the next
0: four to ten years Mm -hmm. definitely so my i'm sorry we can't end yet so my whole thing (laughs) is that um for self-driving cars and let's say misdiagnosing a cold all the way up to uh, giving someone a life sentence versus self-driving cars all the way up to the sort of most impactful level of dropping a nuke on a city um the core difference is that getting it wrong with nukes is a lot worse than getting it wrong versus misdiagnosing a cold. That's the only fundamental difference, right?
2: I don't yeah. know if it's only, but it is a key one. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, it's Got a, it.
1: A very big one. And that, I think it. that's the rules that we need to adopt as a species with the adoption of technology like this. I mean, it's no different if we look at history over the last you know, several millennia, we're tool builders and innovators as a species. And things are disruptive when they come out. People get scared and they're like, oh, it's this is new technology. And how is that going to affect us? <clears throat> and I think we're still here on this planet because through our better nature or judgment of, of the finest, people have established rules of behavior about how we use tools could we have annihilated our, ourselves as a species many times over up until this point with our current existing technology of course we're still here so it's all about can we get policy in place and accepted usage guards that we're with people who are who can actually do these things can they think through the setup and make sure that we don't do something like connect some sort of artificial intelligence that's maybe many years off that could connect to a, you know, a nuclear launch system. Let's make sure we never connect those two systems together, basically.
0: Yeah, it seems like just introducing a threshold of this will kill over 10 people. So we probably should think about it or maybe a thousand people, whatever your threshold is. Is that what you guys, a question to both of you, is that what both of you would recommend to safeguard against marauding AI?
1: I mean I, I, personally I don't think that any AI system should ever have the capacity of being used in war to the to the point where there's no it doesn't need to get authentication in order to act on what it's doing. I think that's just inherently dangerous not just from a physical standpoint but from an existential standpoint and a morality standpoint of us as a species. Because like I mentioned earlier that whole Hey, once we have the algorithm, we can blame the algorithm. Yeah. That's human nature. And if we say, hey, the AI dropped that that JDAM 2,000-pound mm-hmm. bomb on that city, it wasn't us. Plausible deniability, it's super dangerous, particularly for politicians.
2: But as you mentioned earlier, if there's an arms race, and this is the fastest way to protect the United States, let's say, you're telling me Rockwell isn't going to
1: design it? <laughs> it probably will. And that's a real shame. Uh, are we creating that very issue because of our own proliferation and our, our, our desire more so in this country than anywhere else about needing to be a, a force of deterrence? You know, How many aircraft carriers do we have in service right now? 13 uh, the next biggest one is two uh, in, in nations in the world and one of ours is the equivalent of seven of the of any other countries combined we have our air Force and naval air power in this country dwarfs the next top 50 countries combined and we have armaments that has never been this disparity in military powers never existed on this planet before to where we are like right now in 2023. It is insane how powerful the United States is militarily. And we keep on pushing the envelope as a deterrent force. So who's the morality check on the uh-huh. development of that technology? Nobody else is going to tell us not to do it. That's what's going
2: well, well, and other countries are going to, give some people the the, uh, rationale they need
1: to do just what
2: you
0: say yep it's yeah yeah go ahead i was just gonna say it's interesting how human nature has got us to the top of the food chain and it makes sense that that nature would not serve us well while being at the top or preserving like stability at the top if we climb so fast like Climbing is not this like a wartime CEO is different from a peacetime CEO. It's the exact same concept. Um, And so it makes sense that what got us here would maybe kill us. Well, and there's also
2: certain things that could be existential that are pretty easy to do. Like you can uh, change the DNA of viruses and kill everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's not a big deal. I mean, in terms of cost and you don't even have to worry about distributing it because Epidemiology tells us that if you're a bunch of sick people in China and you have international travel, boom. Um, so the, the high tech that we have is for a certain kind of weapon, um, but the same motivation to get us in trouble with cheap weapons, and that's what insurgent groups, of course, thrive on cheap weapons. Yep. Anyway, that's a, <laughs> that's a very pessimistic discussion.
0: <laughs> yeah, now that we've we've fully <laughs> gone sour, I'll close. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. So talked about a lot of interesting things, some things that stuck out to me. Uh, Fairness is not relative to perfection. It's relative to the existing solution. And this is a common misconception. Um, Outputs of algorithms used for decision science should be seen as information, not the decision. And this is I've seen very common in businesses where they say this is what the algorithm said. Let's do it without actually thinking through what that information is coming from and what that information implies. Statistics defines models as explanations of the world and algorithms as sort of complex automated proxies that estimate models or trends in models. So they're very different and um, often they're used in in machine learning and data science in sort of interchangeably. But from a statistics perspective, those are the definitions. As a data scientist and specifically a good one. And specifically at small companies, you need to do many jobs. Um, We talked about educating about model use and what it means. It's also helpful if you have an understanding of the underlying mechanisms of what is going on, have some subject matter expertise. It's also good to be a good software engineer and write code. And so building a generalist skill set is really valuable as a data scientist. Um, at, At larger companies, though, you can typically find a niche where you don't really need to generalize as much. Uh, genetic algorithms for rare events check it out uh, and then AI overload lords are far away but autonomous weapons are are definitely of some concern as, as we just discussed. So father, um, do you have any advice for machine learning engineers from a statistical rigor perspective?
2: Yeah, you got to deal better with uncertainty.
0: What does that mean
2: that any anytime you use real data from the real world, crank through an algorithm and get a result. There's going to be uncertainty in there. The user has to know what that uncertainty is, and it's often very hard technically to characterize that uncertainty. There's been some recent advances I've like mentioned before, like conformal prediction in the case of uh, forecasting, but the problem is more general. And statisticians haven't really worked out, for example, if your data are not IID, what happens then? Um, And that's an open area, which I think is terribly important. And until we do better at it, a lot of our algorithms risk misleading decision makers because we don't also tell them what the band is in the outcome.
0: Right. Yeah. Things that exceed a confidence interval, for instance. Um, We don't even
2: we can't even get good confidence intervals necessarily. Yeah. It's a really important and tough problem. And I wish more people worked on it.
0: All right. Well, if you're a listener and are into conformal inference or or confidence intervals, thank you for your service. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, until next time, it's been Michael Burke and my co-host. Ben Wilson. And have a good day, everyone.
1: See you next time. Bye-bye.